2 Corinthians chapter 13 and the last paragraph. And as you're turning, let me welcome those who might be watching our live stream online. It's so good to have you connect with us, whether you're watching live or later. We invite you to be with us and to be in touch with the church. If we can help you, if we can pray for you, um, there's so much more here in person. We've come to the final words of this long letter, and it should be a wonderful time celebrating uh, our study over these uh, 37 messages through 2 Corinthians. We'll be reading in verse 11 through the end. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. May the Lord bless the hearing, believing, obeying of his holy word. Amen. Amen. I'm entitling our closing sermon, Finishing Well. It is Paul's words of farewell. In fact, that first uh, command, that first exhortation in most English Bibles reads, Rejoice! A few translate it as farewell, because it is his farewell comment. And I wanted to dwell on that for a second. What is behind the word farewell? Like the word goodbye, it's a contraction of something more. And what are we saying when we say farewell? That sounds very formal. Or when we say goodbye, which is still formal. In fact, some people have reduced goodbye to just bye or bye-bye or bye-bye. I've used them all, so I'm in the same boat. Do you know the beautiful roots of these expressions? The original word goodbye was a contraction for God be with ye. From the 1500s in English as they spoke, and I'm not going to try to imitate the ancient dialect, but it it would be reduced. God be with ye and God be we. And, and, And the different ways they would condense the terminology until it became not God by ye, good by and eventually goodbye and yes they've traced it down actually to uh, someone writing uh, between 1565 and 1570 they spotted its first usage in the English language using computers of course goodbye and farewell is a similar contraction of the word fair and well fair comes from the old english word farin which means to journey that part i didn't know to journey well this morning i said farewell to most of my family they'd come into town for high school graduation on friday they stayed and celebrated father's day which was great i had six of the seven kids home and spouses and the two new grandbabies, and a dog. 
So it was a busy house. And, and some have to travel 11 or 12 hours, so they've already left before we had breakfast. And others are on the road as we speak. And as we said our farewell, we're wishing them safe travels, a blessed journey, and with goodbye, God be with you. And the word here that Paul uses, rejoice, is not its simplest command to be joyful. It's related to be well, be cheerful. And it is the equivalent of God be with you and fare fare thee well. Which made me think that's a wonderful way to capsulize these final comments. It's Paul's farewell. And he wants us, among other things, to finish well. Because as he closes, typical to most epistles and to most parents at the door saying goodbye, here are a short list of little reminders of what to do. Drive safely, don't speed, send me a text when you get there. I want all those things that we say in our farewells. The apostle, the inspired author of this letter to people, Christians he knew and loved, contains little condensed reminders of things he has already said. And it would be worthwhile. I don't know what your Sunday afternoon practice is to uh, honor the Sabbath day and to make it holy, but maybe reread these 13 chapters and see how well these closing words capture some of those highlights. I can't try to summarize 13 chapters in one message. We'll focus on the language here, but we'll draw some connections. If you're taking notes, it'll help you. This is Paul's farewell with directives, with a promise, and with his prayer for the saints, for us. So let's take a look. The first heading this morning is this, Christians finish well, fare thee well. That's really what this command rejoice does. It's that introductory invitation to travel well, to journey well, cheerfully, confidently. And after the word rejoice come four exhortations. And you'll see those in the sermon note sheet. Uh, I've got aim for restoration. I've got accept comfort. I'll explain that. Agree with one another. And number four, live in peace. Let's take a look. Paul first says here in these final short statements, aim for restoration. One of the great themes of this whole letter has been to see believers reconciled one with another and to stop their divisions, stop their factions, don't follow those false apostles and be uh, partisan, but be reconciled and be restored not only to God, but to one another. This is a verb uh, to pursue this reconciliation. In Greek, it's just one verb. And it was earlier used, just in verse 9, as a noun as Paul was praying for them and writing for them. You see just above in verse 9, For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. And the verb is, is a wonderful picture of mending. Um, I didn't purposely put on a sock, but my right sock has a little hole that I need to mend. My mother taught me how to mend a sock. What do you do? You take the existing fabrics and you take your needle and hopefully a matching color of thread 
and you tie knot. Well, I don't need to go into all the details. You draw the existing fabric together when you mend it. In the ancient world, they would, were constantly mending their nets if they were fishermen. They were constantly mending uh, their packages, their crates, or their uh, ceramics if they were merchants. Had to mend the cart and, and mend the, the leather strap on the ox, and they had to fix their sandals. All sorts of mending. Many, it was a common verb. I have to explain that because in the modern world, we just buy a new one. I, I'm not going to call out millennials or anyone else, but when something breaks, they often just buy a new one. We're not big on mending. So just so you know what the concept is, preserving what you have, reconnecting it to its functional status. And that's what Paul says. He's praying for the mending to happen, and he's saying, be mending. Aim for reconciliation and restoration. That's a wonderful expression in the English for this concept. Um, If we were to go maybe more in the street language or the language of experience, we might say, pull yourselves together. And you can picture the mending going on. Pull yourselves together. Not yourself, but plural. Pull yourselves together. means reaching out. Restoring those relationships. If your Bible is still open, look back at chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. These words, I can't tell you how many weeks ago we looked at them, but they should be familiar. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. And I, I could read the whole chapter, but let's start at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. He's speaking both vertically and horizontally. And it's a different verb. Reconciliation. Very clear, distinct concept. You can go back and listen to that previous sermon to pick out all the meaning. But there's a parallel here to the mending, the restoration of what exists. God has made us new in Christ. We are capable of relating to one another, of turning the other cheek and to looking beyond the sins and letting love cover a multitude of sins and thinking of others more highly than ourselves. We had that message just recently. Get to the mending. What happens when we ignore the mending? The nets don't catch the fish. The sandals come undone. The clothing has holes in it. What does it do to a local church where people give up on the mending? It's not easy. But it's right and it's our calling. It's the command of God in the scriptures. The Bible that tells you about Jesus is the Bible that tells you what to do if Christ is in your life and you submit to God as Lord. Aim for restoration. Secondly, it says, 
Uh, in the ESV, the passage has this phrase and it has a footnote. It says, uh, comfort one another. And if you see in the ESV, there's a little footnote in my copy. It's footnote number two. It says in the footnote, listen to my appeal. And again, it's just one word in the Greek. And here it's parakaleo. I mention that because some of you have been around church. You've heard of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. And that's probably in the background of what this verb is about. One who comes alongside as your guide, your comfort, your tutor, and your disciplinarian. It's one who walks alongside and is called alongside. Para meaning outside, kaleo, to call. So the phrase here could go either way. And as I've looked at it, I like the, the, the translation, accept comfort. It says comfort one another. The verb isn't straightforward saying render comfort. But rather it's addressed to the, the whole crowd uh, to, as though to be comforted, to accept uh, this appeal or this calling alongside. Be willing to take that role. Someone might want to mend a relationship with you. Will you let them close with a sharp object? That's part of the process. If you're going to be restored, you have to accept these relationship fixes. Comfort is a great theme in this letter. Paul had many hardships and he talks about how God comforted him. Chapter 1, how, how we can comfort others with the comfort we've received. Comfort is an important theme. Here, let's just take a quick look at chapter 7. Two verses from chapter 7. And Paul talks about his experience of God's comfort. It's related. Chapter 7, verses 5, 6, and 7. For even when we came into Macedonia, that's close to Corinth, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Multiple dimensions of comfort going on. God gets it started, right? God brings the comfort, and then God sends comfort through Titus, who was a cheerful fellow. Titus was a guy that you always wanted to hang with during the coffee time or when your car broke down. Or Titus is the guy. And not only Titus is comfort and encouragement as he was called alongside you but Titus said Paul don't forget all those people back in Corinth you've written them previous letters they're responding they have a zeal for you they have a love for you they're praying for you Paul it's not as bad as you might think there are some that have work to do but so many love you so here the exhortation at the close to us from Paul is to be accepting of comfort be ready to receive the appeal that's being made to comfort and be comforted. Again, it speaks in the plural because it's what should be happening in the local church. Kent Hughes says that comfort in the local church is the currency of concord and unity. 
It's what we spend and what we are paid with comfort. The third of these four grief commands in verse 11 after that initial uh, farewell term. The third is agree with one another. Agree with one another. And here Paul is, is clear that it's always agree on the main things. And there's liberty in Christ to agree, disagree on secondary and tertiary things. It's the main things we should agree on. And we should agree one with another. And we should pursue that. Again, this is work, much like mending. It takes effort. It takes intentionality. And if you're not doing it and not agreeing, it's going to be hard to have restoration and comfort. Here I'm most mindful of a passage we looked at in prayer meeting recently from Philippians chapter 2. Before it gets to the great Christological hymn, look to Jesus, see how Jesus humbled himself and did all this for us. Paul wrote this in Philippians 2 verses 1 through 4. He said, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, and the answer is yes for Christians, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You need to pursue a common mind and a unified mind on the most important things. How do we do that? Well, first of all, you aim to do it. You say, I will do it, Lord, help me to do it. We pray about it. And then I think we also have to be good listeners so we know where the minds of others are at. So much of our social media and and cultural talk is, is all of a sudden spotting a a sign or a label and then writing someone off. Oh, they used this word or they followed that person or they quoted from this ministry or they, they didn't say something about that issue. And all of a sudden we pigeonhole them rather than pursuing oneness of thought and doing the hard work of listening and doing the hard work of defining and the hard work of pursuing agreement on what's most important and accepting disagreement on what might not be the most important. How do we know? Scripture is our guide. Scripture is a lamp to our feet where we stand and a light to our path where we should go. I would not venture to share your opinions with the world if you haven't been reading your Bible. How's that for a pastoral push? Or a pastoral kick in the pants. We're so quick to give our opinion. But is it measured by the wisdom of God? Is it tested against the word of God? Or are we just pontificating and maybe stepping on toes unnecessarily? Look at the focus of Jesus. He didn't always get pulled into these debates. He could have spent 24-7 debating the Pharisees, right? Yeah? He answered it when necessary. He ministered. He made time for the sick and the weary to do physical ministry. And primarily he preached and brought the message of God. Church, we can find our focus 
looking to Jesus. And I'm so excited, if you didn't catch the announcement earlier, I'll make it now, that having concluded 2 Corinthians, we'll have a a one-time sermon next week, but on July 10th, we will start the Gospel of Luke. It is the longest book in the New Testament. It may take us two years. But having started my ministry in this very pulpit 27, 28 years ago this July with the Gospel of Mark, it's about time we studied the life of Jesus in another Gospel. And so we'll be looking at Luke. That we might have the mind of Christ and pursue it as best we can. It's hard work. But we need to pursue agreeing one with another. That's all throughout Paul's writing. He's constantly clarifying, I'm saying this because I love you. I'm not going to do that because I love you. He's pursuing and engaging. And the last of these brief commands in verse 11 in the final chapter says, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. As he finishes these four succinct commands, he gives that promise that the God of peace would be with you. And he calls Christians to live in peace. Do you know, hear me, do you know that one of the stellar marks that you are a Christian right with your God is that you can be at peace in the world? You don't need to be all anxious and uptight, aggrieved and conflicted. There is peace available to Christians. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. The Spirit can bring you to peace. How? How so? Because if you're right with God, first and foremost, and God makes commitments to you, He will finish what He's begun in you. He will be with you and He will never leave you nor forsake you. He's given you a lamp for your path. Follow it. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He's surrounded you with a company of believers. He's put you in a local church where there are gifts. How can you not face tomorrow unafraid or have peace today? No longer fearing death. No longer fearing a a turn in your events because it's not what you had planned or dreamed. If you're holding the hand of God and you're at peace with God, Will not his peace bring you help, whatever your circumstance? So Paul simply appeals, live in peace. It's the unbeliever. Romans 3, the big chapter that pulls back the curtain and shows the ugly, sinful, depraved heart of humanity. Romans 3, one of the descriptors there is not only that they have no righteousness, but it says in Romans 3.17, and... The way of peace they have not known. The world and their sin is like Adam and Eve in the bushes in the garden. Oh no, we've sinned and here comes God. The Christian in Christ has peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, if you want to read about that. We have peace with God. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Live in peace. Do you see the steadiness and peace of Paul? He's being afflicted. He's being called nasty names. His ministry is being undermined. They talk about his, his physical tra- traumatic 
things that are going on, that thorn in his flesh, whatever it was, they're, they're poking fun of him. They're making all sorts of complaints against him. Yet he seems to have this anchor, this keel of peace at work in his life. Paul would pray as he wrote to the Romans in Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Romans 15, 13, such a precious promise. And as he signs off in Romans, he mentions peace twice more. He says, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Live in peace. It is possible. Will you obey? Will you pursue the obeying of that command? If you do, the promise is there. The God of love and peace will be with you. So these four commands, as Paul begins this conclusion, will help us finish well, will help us take the whole of this letter and live it out. These are are important reminders as we're heading out the door with 2 Corinthians under our arm. They're focused. Maybe, Maybe jot them down in your planner. Make an appointment for Monday or Wednesday or Friday to reread these verses and to put them before your eyes that you might obey what God has asked you to obey. This brief summary of the letter. Will you finish well? Will you fare well? Will your journey go well? These commands are pretty important to take with you. But then there's this middle phrase in verse 12. The holy kiss and all that. I, I kind of give that this heading... Christians fellowship well with one another. We need to finish well. That's a lot of work in those four commands. But we also want to fellowship well and understand that we're not alone. God has given us others to pursue all those commands. As you write down those four commands, the person sitting next to you is also trying to mend their ways and be of one mind and live at peace. And the person in the back is doing that and the person over there is doing that. So Understand that you have a fellowship. You have a relationship in the local body, and I say fellowship well. So what does kissing have to do with that? Kids, don't blush. We're not going to talk too much about kissing. But we'll talk a little bit because it's right here in the Bible. What does it say? Verse 12. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Why would Paul even say that? Because as we're working on all those commands and we have fellowship, he wants our fellowship to go well. And hear me, kissing is the symbol of love and peace. If you're going to be mended in your relationships, if you're going to pursue peace and live in peace and the God of peace is going to bless you, what is a symbol of love and peace? It's the kiss. In the ancient world, it was very common. And we can think perhaps of modern day Europe. Have you been to Europe? Uh, the French, mon Dieu, we're going to kiss on each cheek. And they do that European thing. Sorry, I'm not making fun of it. Other cultures do that. And when else do we do that? When family gathers. Not just my kids, Andrew, Catherine, Matthew, Rebecca, John, Daniel, and Heather. But my daughters-in-law. My son-in-law. 
When I give Andrew a kiss, he's got that beard. Kiss him on the neck. Tell him I love him. I'm proud of him. And I kiss his wife, Kristen, and say we love you too. It's a sign of belonging. It's a sign of love and peace. You're welcome in our home as one of us. So Paul takes what was culturally practiced within certain strata of society. You wouldn't necessarily, if you're an elite, you wouldn't necessarily kiss a slave. If you're here, you wouldn't kiss somebody over there in those greetings. It was usually family or a particular gathering where there were bonds. Christians took that cultural practice and made it our own. He says, when you come to church, there needs to be such love and peace among you that you welcome each other, you greet one another in this way. He doesn't mean literally when you show up at 516 Mo Road, you stand at the door and give out kisses. That isn't exactly how we obey this. But that we use symbols of love and affection. I'm never really a huggy guy. I worked on it for years. I'm getting better. When you're a big person, you don't want to hurt anybody with a hug. And it just just wasn't my thing. But all the more when you see fellow believers, should we have an openness and affection, a kindness and a welcome of family. As a very young pastor, I don't know if I've ever told this story publicly, uh, we were at a church Christmas event, and, and uh, Kay Craig was our piano player. She did the organ a little bit, mostly piano player. So I kind of like our Glenda and others that have played piano for us. And, and we just had such a wonderful, I'm pretty sure it was a Christmas party. It was in their home, and, and they were some of the dearest people as a young pastor and wife. And we just had babies. And, and as we're getting up, Kay was seeing us to the door. And I said, oh, thank you, Kay. Uh, like I might kiss my mother-in-law, and I just grabbed her and gave her a kiss on the cheek. And I didn't plan that. Wait, wait, you're not my mother-in-law. I'm not at home. I'm at your home. And I, all of a sudden, I blushed. And, and she said something kind, oh, we love you too, Pastor. But it felt appropriate. Because we're in that setting with, with believers and closeness. Paul is pushing us to fellowship well in very tangible ways. doesn't have to be a kiss on the cheek. People might think we're all Frenchmen or other cultures, but is there a warmth in your welcome? Is there eye contact and body language that says, I am really glad you're here and I have a minute to, to welcome you? And it needs to pervade the body, not just your favorite people, but the family that gathers here. And he doesn't just say the holy kiss. And by the way, why does he say holy? It's a check to remind you that this is a spiritual greeting. This is a spiritual bond, not just a cultural thing. We have to kick it up a notch. We're not just doing the, uh, you know, the... The, the cultural, what do you see, sports teams, they give the side hug, yeah, good game, good game. It has to be something genuine and spirit-led. It's holy. But this phrase in verse 12, greet one another with the holy kisses, followed in verse 13, all the saints greet you. We have to remember that it's not just the fellowship of the local church to which we belong and which can be a blessing to us, but it's the kingdom 
It's the universal church that also has a unity. One scholar said these two comments on greetings stress the unity of the church, local and universal. There are more Christians than just here. And we should be ready and understand that and feel blessed by that. And our fellowship should grow. Be in touch with Christians in other places. Understand that the family of Christ is large. Fellowship well. Not just finish well, but fellowship well. Well, our third heading this morning, and we'll pick up speed here, is this. Christians find spiritual help from God. Find spiritual help and blessing from God. As Paul finishes with these commands and reminds them of the value of loving Christian fellowship, in verse 14, he brings in the triune God. He speaks of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's a great benediction, but it is also the culmination of what he's been telling in the end comments here. If we are to fare well and, and, and be well as we say goodbye, Paul, to this letter, we are going to go with the triune God offering us help and blessing. Commentator Paul Barnett said, Paul reminds the Corinthians that their mending does not lie within themselves, but with the grace of Christ, the love of God, and the Spirit's fellowship. If we're going to do the do's, we need to depend upon the God who gives. So it's fitting as an encouragement, as a prayer for Christians to whom Paul has just written all these commands and this realities, reminding them as well as praying for them. First, he reminds them this, your first experience was the saving grace of Jesus Christ. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Why does he mention Jesus first? Why isn't it Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? That's our normal Trinitarian expression, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He mentions Christ first, we think, because of the Godhead, Christ is the first person of the Godhead that we encounter when we are brought to faith. So he's listed first because of the experience of Christ first. When we're born again, it's because of the grace of Christ, putting our faith in Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You don't experience the agape love of the Father unless you come by me. Jesus, in this case, comes first because Paul is reminding them of our Christian experience. If you've gone through the new birth, if you are a Christian, you know the grace of Christ already. Earlier in this letter, Paul had written a, a verse that summarized the gospel. Summarize saving grace. Do you know what verse I'm going to? You who sat through all the sermons on 2 Corinthians, do you know what one verse kind of describe? Don't shout it out. What one verse might describe Christ's saving work for us? Let me take you to chapter 8 and verse 9. Hopefully you've got it underlined if you underline in your Bibles. Chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. That's the incarnation. 
so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who did that for you. So in Paul's benediction, Paul's closing prayer, as it were, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all is first. I have to pause. If you're not a believer, if you're not sure you're a believer, if you're not sure of your relationship with Christ and, and you've been groping at a relationship with God the Father or understanding the Bible or obeying these commands and it's not connecting, go to the root of the matter. You must be born again. To walk in spiritual newness of life requires a birth by the Spirit of God. The new birth, John 3. You must be born again. You must be born from above. You must be born of water and of the Spirit. So I would encourage you, if there's any doubt, take time apart. Come and pray with an elder after the service. Or, or, or walk outside and sit quietly and say, Father, am I yours? Father, Give me the new birth. Father, may I know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. May I be born again. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. God is not waiting you, beloved, to clean up your life so that you have something to offer him. He needs nothing from you. Be still and know that He is God and know that Christ died for sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What manner of love is that? That's amazing love. That's amazing grace. That's the good news of the gospel. Don't delay. And don't sit and offer, Oh Lord, if you do make me born again, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do that. There's no bargaining. It's amazing grace. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Christ the Savior comes, dives in the water like a lifesaver, finds us on the bottom, not spiritually breathing, not spiritual life, and raises us up, resuscitates us, gives us new life and newness in Christ. Experience the saving grace of Christ first. And then Paul writes to Christians who are born again. He says, you experience the agape love of God. The love of God. And the Greeks, again, had seven different words for love. It's not just brotherly love, as though you were a brother to God. It's not erotic love. It's not lustful love. It's not um, all those different words they had. It is the obscure Greek word that talked about an unconditional giving love. Christians know it as Christian love, agape love. If you're in Christ, you know the love of God for you. What an encouragement. I'm trying to live at peace with these people, Lord. It's not easy. And they have to live at peace with me, and it's not easy for them. But the Father looks on us with love and helps us. And there's love mentioned all throughout 2 Corinthians. I could highlight a few verses if we had the time. I'll call out a few. Chapter 3, verses 4, 5, and 6. Um, Such is the confidence we have through Christ toward God. Again, confidence in Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves, Paul writes, to claim anything is coming from us. 
But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, the spirit gives life. That's the way Paul talked. He said, I am what I am because of God. I have a God who loves me. Or chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, Paul says, we do not lose heart. Chapter 5, verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Does the love of God control you? Does it help you? Does it meet you where you are to do what God calls you to do? The love of God. And finally, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. You experience that as well, don't you, beloved? Christians, we have the Holy Spirit poured out. You're not a Christian if you don't have the Holy Spirit because the Spirit comes and makes the new birth happen and you have it. It's not just a second blessing. We can be filled further with the Holy Spirit, but he's with everyone who's a believer. Earlier, Paul had written this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What is the treasure? We have the gospel. We have a relationship with God. The Holy Spirit indwells us, even though we're just clay. Chapter 5, again, a couple of verses that tell us that. He who has prepared this for us, talking about a heavenly home, this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. That's 557 says, we walk by faith and not by sight because we're walking in step with the Holy Spirit. And then all the way to chapter 12, verse 10, a verse that I've got underlined. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, and all the duties God lays upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How am I strong in my clay vessel condition? Because I have a power. I have the power of God within me. I have fellowship, partnership, participation with the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's reminding Christians here. Christians, we're called to finish well. We're called to fellowship well. And we're called to find help and blessing in our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So most sermons end with my own little farewell section, those brief words at the door. Here they are for today, even on a sermon about the farewell of Paul. Here are my three brief words. Number one, work at finishing well. Work. Just to remind you that it's, it's not passive. It doesn't happen automatically, but it needs to work. Kent Hughes put it this way. In truth, therefore, the Christian life and the existence of unity within the church do not come through passivity. We must work at every aspect at all times. Restoration is work. Comfort is work. Agreement is work. Peace is work. And even rejoicing requires thought and effort. We have to work at finishing well. Number two, love one another in the fellowship. Of all the commands given, love is right at the top. Isn't love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Love your neighbor as yourself. My friends, your closest neighbor are those in the family of Christ. Paul practiced that. 
And here, let me mention, do you know how things ended? Paul wrote this letter, said, I'm coming to you. We remember he's planning a third visit. How did that go? What happened after Paul wrote this letter saying, I'm coming, I might have to whoop on some of you, spiritually speaking. How'd it go? Well, we're told in Acts chapter 20, Paul arrived and he stayed for three months. And we don't know much about those three months, but they seem to be times of peace. There's no more letter being written. In fact, in those three months at that final visit at Corinth, as Paul was with those dear people, I think there was a peace, a love, and a unity. Because in the midst of those three months, we believe Paul wrote the letter to the Romans while he was in Corinth. The letter of the Romans filled with expressions of no condemnation, peace with God through Christ. Love and peace and all those beautiful themes without all the admonishments to get your act together as a goofy church. Things in Corinth seem to have wrapped up nicely. For us to progress and be used of God to reach our community, to bring the gospel to this place and through our missionaries to many other places, we need to be working on these and loving one another dearly. And my final exhortation is where the Apostle has left it with that great benediction and prayer. Find your spiritual help and blessing with the Lord. That's where we find it. And having found it, that's where we can give it. To end this sermon, let me quote from the beginning of Paul's letter. Chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's what it's all about. Having experienced the grace and love of God, we live graciously and spread the love of God in very real ways to a thirsty world. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Bibles. We sing about them. We carry them. We read them. But our prayer this day, Father, having finished a study of this wonderful epistle, this piercing and challenging epistle, we pray that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only that we would do the work you've set before us to do with the help that you provide. Your power is made perfect in our weakness. We have no excuse. Oh, Father, help us. And may we rejoice in our going, in our mending, in our unity, seeing what you're working out here. Father, we know there's much to be done. May you help us and may it all be for your glory in this place and in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.